my job wasn't very glamorous, actually. It was, I was in charge of the budgets and production schedules for all these artists. So I was kind of like the villain in the building, you know, it was like, why is this taking so long? Teach me how you make a Miss Piggy head. Why does it cost $21,000 to make one Miss Piggy head? And is there a way we could streamline that or make fewer of them? Uh, these were the questions I was forced to ask, but it was a really, really amazing learning experience. And I'm not joking when I say everything I ever needed to know about marketing. I learned at the Jim Henson company. They taught me like in the first two weeks, I had the first amazing lessons that really transformed my career, not just my life at, in entertainment. This is Andrew Davis. And I want you to steal my strategy. You're listening to Steal My Strategy. The show where we talk to smart people who invite you to copy, review, and remix practical ideas you can apply to life and business. Are you ready? Let's get to it. You're a professional speaker. What does that mean? How do you become a professional speaker? <laughs> for me, it's been a really kind of odd path. You know, I ran a marketing agency for 20 years. And before that, I worked in the television business, writing scripts and working for the Today Show and the Muppets. And so I think, you know, as I was running my agency, I was looking for a way to generate leads for the business. And we tried everything. You know, we tried to buy ads. We tried to market ourselves. We bought booths at conferences and trade shows. We went to every networking event you could possibly imagine. And yeah, sure, we generated some leads and closing those deals was just as hard as anyone would expect with those kinds of leads. And then I was at an event actually in Florida, where I arrived early, which I generally do, uh, the woman who was organizing the event said, I don't know who you are, but you're really early. And we have a slot open at 10 o'clock. One of the speakers couldn't make it in. And I can't seem to find anyone to fill it. Do you want to speak for 45 minutes about whatever you want to whoever shows up in the room? And so I skipped the first session, which went from nine to 10, went to my room, made a presentation, came back down and then delivered the presentation. And before we left the room, after that 45 minute presentation, we had two leads for our business. I thought, this is amazing. Like, I wonder if, uh, wonder if we got really good at this, if you'd generate more and more leads. That was 2008. So uh, for the next three years, we stopped doing any other marketing activity pretty much with exception of content marketing related to a lot of the events that we were speaking at actually. Uh, and we just focused on speaking at the right kinds of events that would generate the right kinds of leads because they closed faster at higher dollar value and they're the best kind of clients to work with. So that's how I got into speaking. And when I sold the agency, I spent a lot of time wondering what to do <laughs> with my life. My wife said I couldn't watch Judge Judy forever. Like that was something different my time doing. So I started just taking some of the event inquiries that I was getting and realized that I had only scratched the surface. I didn't really know what it was like to be a professional speaker. And so I've spent the last eight years, eight, nine years trying to figure out exactly how the business works and how to become better. And when I'm not writing books, I'm on the road speaking. Yeah. That's awesome. That, and that's a great story. Thank you so much for sharing that. But I got to say, out of everything you said, the thing I am most interested in, did you say you worked at the Muppets? Yes. Yes. I worked at the Muppets. So what did you do at the Muppets? Oh man, you know what? The Muppets taught me everything I ever needed to know about marketing, by the way. But my job at the Muppets was I was in charge of the workshop, which is where they make the puppets. All right. So if you watch Sesame Street, all those puppets are made at a workshop in Manhattan. Uh, it was 40 of the most amazing artists I've ever met in my life who spent every single day making puppets for movies and television shows. And Bear in the Big Blue House was one of the shows I worked on when I first got there. And my job wasn't very glamorous, actually. It was I was in charge of the budgets 
and production schedules for all these artists. So I was kind of like the villain in the building, you know, it was like, why is this taking so long? Teach me how you make a Miss Piggy head. Why does it cost $21,000 to make one Miss Piggy head? And is there a way we could streamline that or make fewer of them? Uh, these were the questions I was forced to ask, but it was a really, really amazing learning experience. And I'm not joking when I say everything I ever needed to know about marketing, I learned at the Jim Henson company. They taught me, like in the first two weeks, I had the first amazing lessons that really transformed my career, not just my life at, in entertainment. Yeah. You know, I would love to spend the entire podcast talking to you about why it costs $21,000 to make a Miss Piggy Head. <laughs> I'm actually interested in that, but we're not going to do that. However, why don't you give us one of your best marketing lessons from the Jim Henson company? Yeah, sure. Well, so I was working on Bear in the Big Blue House. It was the first assignment I was given. Have you ever seen that show, Robert? I haven't. No. I'm a That's Muppets okay. fan, but I don't know all the Muppets production. <laughs> I bet a lot of people in the audience know Bear in the Big Blue House. Their kids grew up on it, and it's a really amazing show. But Bear in the Big Blue House was a partnership between the Jim Henson Company, Disney, and Sony. And I went to the first budget meeting, and my job was to kind of keep the budget in line for the workshop. And as we were going around the table, everybody was saying, oh, you know, hey, we're doing fine. We're on schedule. Everything's going to be fine. Then they got to me, and it's my first meeting at this brand new company with all these big executives. And I said, look, guys, we're kind of in trouble. We're already $500,000 over budget for the entire season. And we haven't even shot an episode yet. And I've got a plan to put it together. And Brian Henson, the CEO of the company, kind of interrupted. And he said, oh, Andrew, I'm sure you'll figure it out. Welcome to the team. He didn't seem to care. And I thought that was weird. You know, this is a budget meeting. We should be addressing this. So when I got back to the office, you know, because you're new, it's one of those things where you get an orientation with every department. So I eventually had a meeting within the next week or so with the merchandising and licensing team. Now, these two women, it was only two women that run the department. They were the smartest people in the Jim Henson company, I tell you. I sat down with them and I said, look, I understand what you guys do. You know, we create a great property and it's really entertaining and you have some great puppets. You can then license the puppets and make a Tickle Me Elmo doll and that grosses a lot of money. But I have a problem with Bear in the Big Blue House. I'm $500,000 over budget and it's getting worse every day. What should I do? And they said, Andrew, you should not worry about the budget overruns until you're in like the eight, $10 million range. And I was like, what? And they said, look, if you inhibit the ability to create a character and some content the audience falls in love with, we will never be able to license any of it. And no one needs a Grover plush doll. <laughs> they only need a Grover plush doll when they fall in love with the content, the characters, and the products that we create. And that's when we can recoup almost any loss. And from then on, I realized that if you created valuable content that people fell in love with and built a relationship with the talent and the hook of the content, that you could sell them on almost anything. And after I left the Jim Henson company, the only thing that rings true in my head still every single day when I work in the marketing business is that truism, that content builds relationships and relationships build trust and trust drives revenue. Yeah, that's an excellent lesson. And it's one that every marketer and frankly, every business person needs to know because the investment matters. And if you obsess over the wrong thing, you won't get the outcome you want. And too often, it's easy to obsess on what's quantifiable, whereas the art form itself and the, the things that create the emotion and the passion is what really, really drives the business. So excellent. Thank you for sharing that. And actually, when it comes sure. to content, I mean, you you spent a lot of time teaching people how to develop great content. And, and one of the areas I'm, I'm especially interested in your expertise is on virtual events, because there's a lot of financial advisors that want to expand their businesses nationally, go after bigger markets. Mm -hmm. They have to do a lot of that virtually. They're also trying to create engaging ways 
for clients and prospects to interact with them online. Yeah. So when you look at what's being done out there, I know there's a lot of bad virtual events. Like, <laughs> What's the difference? What makes great for great events online and, and the things that really hold attention and pull people in? I think the number one thing that, that we need to grasp a hold of in the virtual world is that the relationship is person to person. And that's very different than an in-person event or engagement or meeting. So just think about if you go to a big event and there's a big screen with the slides on it and a presenter that's small up there and you're following the slides and it's, you know, it's 500 or a thousand people in the auditorium, you know, that works. But when you go to a virtual environment and you pop up a PowerPoint presentation, and then you're really, really small in the corner of the window and trying to have an engaging conversation with the person on the other end, we've got it inverted. We're creating like a, a real world experience that does doesn't work in the virtual world. So like my first recommendation is to dump any slides, like make this person to person. You're going to look into the camera and build a real rapport with the person on the other side of the camera. One of the things I learned in television is that video is a flat, cold medium. It's just, it's really hard to get your emotion across when you make yourself an 18th of the screen. And, you know, you've got a big static slide there with 15 bullet points. You want to invert that, make yourself big, as big as possible, and bring your energy level up so that you're talking directly into the camera. And it may feel stupid and weird to you, but you've got to break through the coldness of that video kind of medium and screen. So just remember that it's all about the people, no matter what you're doing in the virtual world and focus on you first, any other supplemental material or polls and, you know, gimmicks and gags as kind of secondary to the experience. Excellent. Now, I'm a financial advisor. Our audience is financial advisors, right? So I, I'm going to give you some objections that I have. Like, I agree with what you're saying. Hit me. But okay, we're sharing data, right? One of the ways we prove yeah. that we're valuable and, and able and capable is to show people what we know, what we understand about the market, yeah. the economy, financial planning concepts. And a lot of that stuff really takes visuals. So I can't yeah. explain everything really well without my slides. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is that's commodity content. All right. Like if you're truly going to differentiate yourself in a market full of other financial advisors and financial planners, you're going to have to take a different tack because I've had meetings with financial advisors and financial planners myself, and they all present me the same kind of stuff in the exact same kind of way. You've got to show me you're different. And if you challenge yourself to tell me the same story using no visuals or visuals that you have to use just your screen for, you're going to come up with a much more compelling case, a much more compelling interaction. And you're going to differentiate yourself by how you do it, not just what you tell them. So look, like at the end of the day, we all have access to the same data. We all are selling the same products and services. The way you have to differentiate yourself is how you do it. So I would challenge you to everybody to dump the slides and find a way to show me without using the slide as a crutch, without using a graph or a chart as the crutch to prove you're an expert. I think it's great advice. So advisors are trying to use video more. They're trying to break through more. I know this isn't the only tip you have. What are some other ways to get more engagement out of video and, and virtual content? Yeah, well, I look, I think you've got to really think through it as, you know, everybody wants short content these days, and I don't necessarily agree with making things shorter. What I want you to think about is really making it more engaging in the deepest sense, like truly understanding what makes a great conference call or a great meeting is going to make a great virtual engaging session. And that means you actually really have to think through the kind of content. Everybody's spending a lot of time in the virtual world these days. Everybody's on Zoom for hours and hours a day. If it's just going to be another Zoom engagement, 
it's not going to be different. It's not going to feel like you're offering me an experience that I can't get elsewhere. And that's what I'm really paying for at the end of the day. In fact, people will pay you know, two or three times as much sometimes for a great experience, even if the product is exactly the same as the competitors. So one of the things you should think about doing is actually using a simple uh, strategy. I call it the curiosity gap. So a curiosity gap is just a void between what you know and what you want to know. So curiosity gaps, just avoid between what you know and what you want to know. And if you can create a presentation that invites people to chase an answer like every two to three minutes and gets them the answer, but then you open up a new curiosity gap. So they're chasing the next one. They will stay truly engaged, meaning their attention is going to be with you and the presentation. So I want you to really kind of focus on those kinds of activities that keep the story and the momentum of the meeting going by inviting your, your viewer, your attendee, your prospect to chase an answer as, as long as you can. Yeah, I love that. Was that helpful? Was that a helpful one? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's awesome. Actually, we call those curiosity loops. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. An open loop, yeah. In content development, because we when we create a white paper or some type of lead magnet for our clients to use, we always yep. raise more questions at the end than what we answered in the content. And we lead them back to the advisor to get those answers. So yeah, yeah we, we endorse that concept fully. Absolutely. Yeah, you can do it. I mean, like crafting great curiosity gaps, you know, you can create 10 curiosity gaps in the first 10 minutes of presentation and really keep people chasing the answers even inside of those 10 minutes. And it's subconscious and unintentional in their brain, but it really does heighten their engagement, their awareness. And they're much more likely to take action because they're emotionally engaged. You're creating tension. That's the emotion that actually gets them to the point at which they've got to take action on whatever you're asking them to do. Yeah, love it. Now, Andrew, you actually have some experience working with financial advisors, right? In the past? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when we were running the agency Tipping Point Labs, our first client was a financial services, you know, in the financial services business, it was Putnam Investments. And then we worked with lots of other Fidelity and like Mason and, and all sorts of others. So yes, I, I totally understand the world you live in, the kind of regulations you have to deal with, the stress and strain you're under with what you can and can't stay. It's certainly not easy, but I think it's, I think challenging yourself by embracing those constraints and still looking for ways to be creative and really, you know, look for new opportunities to do things in small ways that are different from everybody else in the marketplace. That's going to make you stand out in a big way. Yeah. And, you know, that's a challenge for advisors. I mean, generally speaking, left brain, more analytical, not to mention it's a conservative industry. So a lot of times the tendency is to be more conservative because we're dealing with such a serious subject, you know, people's money. Mm -hmm. And also Mm -hmm. broadly, the biggest financial companies are very conservative. They're not doing anything really creative. So let's say that I want to stand out. I want to differentiate, but I'm not super creative and I'm not in a super creative space. How do I get there? How can I do what you're saying? Yeah. Well, two things. Number one, I would just remind everybody that great marketing is risky marketing. So like if you're going to just do mediocre marketing that looks like everybody else's, you might as well not be marketing. Okay. Uh, If you really want to make the biggest impact, you've got to take a risk and make a leap. And that means, yes, you probably have to be more creative. Now, if you don't think you're creative. I challenge that. I believe that everybody in the world can be creative if they just train themselves to like connect the dots between the most unlikely things and apply them to what you know. So creativity for me isn't like a strike, lightning strike idea that comes to me in the middle of the night or, you know, and I have to jump up and write it down. It comes from like, 
carefully curating all the experiences I have uh, and then applying them to what I do. And as long as you can start doing that in a car ride or 15, 20 minutes a day, I actually have a creative workout I do when I'm not feeling creative. All I do is I open up Amazon's homepage and I look for a product that I would never buy myself. Like, I don't know what tennis rackets, right? Like I don't play tennis, but if it's on the homepage, I'll pick tennis rackets. And then I pick an audience that I know something about that I maybe market to like marketing professionals or strategic marketing executives. And I sit there for 15 minutes and I brainstorm just all the ways I could connect the dots between tennis rackets and marketers. Now these don't end up being unbelievable genius ideas, but all they do is make sure that my brain is connecting the dots between really obtuse things and what I do and looking for the nuggets of wisdom. One of the great ways to do this, by the way, is to think of yourself as a television executive. So I always tell people to think like a TV producer. You know, in the television world, no one wants a new idea. That's the truth. Like I preached television shows uh, in 2001 with my business partner that ended up being my agency business partner. And we went to LA and we pitched tons and tons of ideas and we got a few ideas optioned. But it all boils down to the fact that the more creative the idea was, the less likely they were to take it. And that's because they don't want a completely harebrained idea. They want a simple twist on a familiar theme. So if you're feeling the pressure to be creative, what you really want to do is just look for a tw simple twist on something that you're already, your audience already finds familiar. It's not a big leap or some giant creative endeavor. Just look for a small, simple hook, a simple twist on a familiar theme theme, and you'll find yourself being creative all of a sudden uh, and taking bigger leaps than you ever thought you would in the past. I love the concept. I'm thinking about taking a risk here, Andrew. Do it. Go big. <laughs> Can we do this exercise live uh, as mm -hmm. an example? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So let's pick a thing, like a hot topic, right? So let's say cryptocurrency, yeah. right? Cryptocurrency. Love it. So we got financial advisors, clients are asking them all the time about cryptocurrency. Should they invest in cryptocurrency? What's up with Dogecoin, right? Like all these questions. Yeah. Yeah. I want to have a, a creative way to approach this topic yeah. in a way that will differentiate me and help me stand out from other advisors and maybe create some extra interest in me and my brand, right? So what's a creative exercise I can go through here? So a creative exercise I would say is uh, pick a Food Network show. Do you, I don't know if you watch Food Network, Robert, but... Occasionally, but I, I also try to watch my weight and it, it takes me in the opposite <laughs> direction. It does, doesn't it? I, I like I like Top Chef and Chopped and all okay. that stuff. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's take a, a simple show like Chopped. Okay. And if you don't know Chopped, just for those that are listening to the podcast, Chopped is an, a show where you take three chefs or three or four. I can't. I think it's three, and you whittle them down over a three course meal to one winner who wins the big deal. So if you said I'm going to make a show for financially minded uh, clients that is going to be all about cryptocurrency. The first thing I would say is, all right, like if Chopped was going to do that show, what would that show look like? And so immediately I'm like, oh, well, I bring in three like cryptocurrency experts onto a podcast and I'd call it Crypto Busted or something. Uh, <laughs> and uh, over the course of a half hour, I would basically, you know, drill them on some basic cryptocurrency questions. I'd have a fact checker that's like live on the air. And as soon as one of them makes a mistake, they're chopped from the show. And we're at the end, one of them is the crypto queen or king of the episode. And we've learned a lot, but we've had a lot of fun doing it. That's a differentiator, right? Like that's a simple hook. Uh, it's a twist on a familiar theme. We know what Chopped is. We know what cryptocurrency is all about. Let's come up with a fun way to create some content around it. 
And again, it's not a great idea, Robert, but that's the kind of thinking I'm constantly doing. Actually, I think it's a great idea. Somebody's listening to it and they're going to rip it out of this podcast. All I ask is- I hope they come up with a Give us credit. Give us credit and share the link. Yeah. Yeah. The name needs work. The name needs work, but that's okay. The concept is solid. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good, good. I like it. And just a, like, if anybody wants to continue with the exercise, you could tweet me ideas, by the way, on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, I'm at Drew Davis here. But if you keep going through shows that you know your client base loves, you'll start to find yourself actually mashing up great ideas and coming up with something that really, really is truly unique to you. And it's ownable and it's referable. It's entertaining. And it's got a tight format that people will fall in love with. Yeah. You've got my gears turning. So that's great. I love talking to really creative marketers. So you're inspiring me, Andrew. I hope the audience is getting inspired as well. I hope so too. (laughs) How do you get to this point where you you're motivated to do this. I mean, the the creative exercises you're doing and it's a process, it's a different way of thinking. So if I want to become a more creative marketer and creative business owner, how can I do this? What do I have to focus on to get to this point? I, yeah, look, I think you just have to challenge yourself. Here's another simple exercise when it comes to like marketing your firm or your services, you know, you've got to look different than everybody else. And like, I've looked at a million financial advisor and financial planner websites and content on the web, and they all say the same thing. You know, you can trust us. We've been in business for X number of years. You know, we have X number of assets under management. We have a process that we go through. We truly care about our customers and clients. That's what everybody says. And they all look the same. Like I call it corporate twinning, by the way, which is <laughs> we spent so much time in the industry that we've started to look like our competitors, even so, though yeah. we think we're different, right? I love that term. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. And it's unintentional, you know, just like twinning. You don't wake up in the morning expecting to dress like your buddy at work, but you do. And it's psychologically proven, by the way, Robert, that within six weeks of spending time with someone, it could be in a relationship or a work environment, you are more likely to dress like them each and every day after that. And totally subconscious and unintentional. I think this happens in every industry. And one of the things that means is you've got to get out outside of your industry. You know, Marianne on the first episode of this show, if we're going to steal her strategy for a second, she was okay getting uncomfortable when she got up in front of a camera. She was very uncomfortable in those first meetings when she was introduced as the taster. Getting uncomfortable is a really great thing. And if you're going to be creative, you've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the truth. And so go to an event that you would never go to in a million years. I did this once. I went to an event uh, for gamers. I'm not a gamer. I wasn't doing research for work. But all of a sudden, I went there and I was just inspired by all the other experiences I had there that I knew all of a sudden I could apply to my business or my client's business as I was just sitting there watching things go by, observing, kind of participating, meeting people and talking to people. Uh, so you've got to you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable and looking for these opportunities to connect dots between things that don't seem to be connected. And you'll find yourself being more innovative, being more creative, and ultimately being more successful. And isn't that really a good business practice anyway to take ideas from outside of your own industry? I mean, if you, it's an advantage. It gives you a competitive advantage because now you're doing things your competitors aren't and therefore you're standing out. A hundred percent. If you can build an experience that feels different than everybody else's, you will be able to sell more, more often at higher fees and you'll get more referrals because people will talk about how the experience is different uh, and they'll know exactly how to refer you. At the end of the day, you can do a really simple thing right now. Like if you just take one moment in your experience, so, you know, as a financial advisor or planner, I'm sure you spend a lot of time setting up meetings with people, right? 
Now, I don't know what you do, Robert, after you set up a meeting, maybe you send a confirmation email or a calendar invite, maybe the day before you send a reminder, like, hey, don't forget tomorrow we're meeting at one o'clock. That's what everybody does. So in one column, you can put like a they do column. Start with that meeting, right? I'm going to confirm a meeting. What if other people do after that? They do these two things. They send a calendar invite, then they confirm the meeting, then they have the meeting, all right? Write down what you do. Do you do the same two things? Well, cross those two things off. And in the third column, write just could do. What could you do that's different than those two things? You could send a handwritten card. Okay, that's an option. You could send an email in between that asking what their favorite sandwich is. And then you could send them lunch the day of the lunch meeting. Like start to get creative with all the could do's on the list. And that's when you're going to start creating a differentiated experience. And if you do that for every moment of commitment, I call it, in your process of onboarding and securing and then servicing a client, you will, I guarantee, create an experience that is yours, that is ownable, it's clearly communicated, it's referable, it lasts longer, and it's worth more. And that's where business is really done. You can spend less time kind of just advertising and marketing yourself and getting out there and just use the referrals that keep coming in as your lead gen tool. Yeah. And, you know, in this business, because there's a lack of differentiation and because it's so relationship driven, those experiences have a tremendous amount of power for making your, your business grow. Yeah, it can, cannot be overstated. Now, Andrew, obviously, this is a big part of what you do as well. You get a lot of your business from referrals and you create an experience through your speaking events. And even it's evident by the way you're presenting on this podcast, like your goal is to really make an impact. I think for financial advisors who are trying to demonstrate to their audience that they are the best choice and draw people in, your abilities are something that I think many would envy. So how do you get to a point like where you are today? your speaking ability, your personal profile, your personal brand? How can financial advisors take their brand, their profile, their presence up a notch? The first thing I would challenge you to do is start with what you want to teach and what you want to preach and what you want to say. But a clear differentiator in the marketplace, especially if if you're kind of contextualizing this as like thought leadership, is that it's really easy to become an expert, right? Like there are millions of experts out there. If you go online right now and you search financial expert, financial advisor, financial planning expert, you will literally find tens of thousands of people that claim they're an expert. I think you want to get out of expert bill because that's like commodity play, right? Everybody is offering how-to advice. They've got the top seven, top 10, top nine tricks that you can do today to have a big impact on your financial future. That's a, it's a long, tough slog. If you're going to really make an impact in the industry and leave a legacy, I think you need to jump out of Expertville into what, what I call visionary town. And visionary town is not as populated with people with seven and 10 tip tricks. You know, These are people that are helping teach you how to think, not how to. And the distinction is really vast. Like, I want to teach you how to think differently. I want to challenge your conventional wisdom. I even want to challenge the things that annoy me about the top 10 tips and tricks that other people are giving. And I want to find my own way to teach in a new light, come up with a new contextual model that's going to help you learn and understand, you know, how to plan for your future in a very different way. And if you can take that leap, this is not like a long, arduous journey. It's a long, arduous journey if you're just haphazard about it. But if you say, look, I'm going to find 10 pieces of expert advice. I'm doing air quotes. If you can't see that on the podcast, I'm going to find 10 pieces of expert advice that annoy me. Like they, every time I see them, I'm like, why do people say this? 
And I'm going to not, the first thing is I'm not going to solve the problem. I'm going to question it. I'm going to share with my audience, my clients. I'm going to ask them, why do you do X, Y, and Z? Why did people say X, Y, and Z? Maybe I'll look back and find out who said it first and why we're following it. Is it outdated advice? And then I'm going to come up with a hypothesis. And then I'm going to start sharing what might be a new solution to this problem. That immediately puts you in a whole new category of thought leadership. You're not just regurgitating stuff other people know. You're actually elevating ideas. And in today's world, it's so easy to share a new idea and see if it resonates. You can do it in email. You can do it with a friend. You can do it on a video. You can do it on TikTok for that matter. And you can share stuff and see how the audience responds. You can aerate it and then amplify the stuff that works. So start with the idea. Like this sounds, is this too overcomplicated? <laughs> no, no, actually, you know, it's amazing as you're saying it, my gears are turning about how I can personally apply this to myself. And thinking about why advisors would want to do this as well. I mean, it, no, it's it's great, Andrew. Just, yeah, continue. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, once you have an idea that you think is worth sharing, yeah, I think getting out there and sharing it is really, really important. But I want to give another little twist on the sharing of it. I think you can earn a ton of trust in today's world if you share your ideas and your insights as hypotheses and advice instead of as tried and true answers. (laughs) So if you just invite people to go on the journey with you, how did you get here? You know, what questions have you been asking? Does the audience really believe that these are the problems we need to solve? And then going after some potential solutions and sharing those with the audience, you gain a huge amount of trust really, really fast. And that's the kind of people that people want to do business with. So if we go all the way back to the beginning of the podcast, Robert, and talk about my first speaking experience, what I shared in that first speech is essentially what I've always shared, even though I've gotten better at it and I tell better stories and I do more research. At the end of the day, even though at that event, I shared client stories, I never told them they were my clients. I shared really high-end ideas and philosophies that kind of were the underpinnings for some great campaigns and marketing practices that we had executed. And at the end, when people come up to me after I've spoken and they say, oh my gosh, that was an amazing presentation. Can you tell me about that Breville story? Do you know the agency that did that? Because we would love to work with them. That's when I knew I gained enough trust that they would ask me that question. And second, I could say, oh my gosh, I'm so flattered. It's actually our client. And they would go, oh my God, we got to schedule a call tomorrow, right? So you gain a lot of trust and credibility by not making yourself the expert. Just a huge amount of humility is going to go a long way in building trust fast with whatever client you serve. Look, this has been incredibly enlightening. You've shared, I think, at least five strategies I want to take away. So we'll see if I can apply them all. But we got to leave the audience, right? We promise we're going to let them steal your strategy. So give us your best strategy for the audience to steal. All right, here. I think you guys should steal this strategy. If you're wondering if your customer experience is good, if your client relationships are delivering something that's unique and different, here's my challenge to you. It's this very simple strategy. Imagine you're attaching an emoji to every single interaction you have with the next client that walks in the door that you interact with, all right? So if you send an email to them asking for an appointment, just imagine what emoji are they attaching to that? Is it like a meh or a, oh my gosh, I'm angry. I don't want more email from these people. Is it a, oh my gosh, this is amazing emoji. If you start attaching an emoji to every one of those interactions and start turning those emojis into great emojis with every interaction, you're going to build an amazing experience because it's all those little micro moments that build a great brand 
and build a great customer experience. And the more you change just those small little things, the better the experience gets. So if you're going to steal my strategy, get your emojis out. I love it. All right. So I got to think about what emoji I would use for this podcast episode. I think the little head blowing off. Mind blown. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) And Andrew, you know, we're almost out of time, but I don't want to use all this time just to completely milk you of all these ideas. But I, I would love to hear a little bit about you personally too. let the audience know who you are. So look, when you're not teaching people about great marketing what are you doing? What are you doing in your free time? Oh man, I am on my boat. Like I love the water. I find the water relaxing and I cannot not smile when I'm on the ocean or on a lake or even when I'm in the pool, I cannot stop smiling. Maybe I was a swimmer as a kid. I even swam in college and I, I don't know if that's where I got it, but I find myself so relaxed on the water. So I, you know, I have a little 24 foot boat down here in Florida where we live for most of the year. And we just take it out on the intercoastal and cruise around and jump into the water and snorkel. And, you know, I'm not even a big fisherman. I just love to, to enjoy the salt air. I really believe that the salt air cures everything for me. It's just, I just feel great. Uh, so that's, that's a huge passion of mine. Yeah. So uh, what part of Florida are you in? I'm in Boca Raton. Okay. So yeah, beautiful, yeah beautiful just near, so I'm, I'm East coast. But I, I love it where you are too. Yeah, so you could actually sail all the way around the southern tip of I know. Florida and back, back up to our place in Palm Coast. I want to go through Lake Okeechobee <laughs> and then come up that way. That's, yeah. that's on my bucket list of things to do. In fact, I have a friend, and this is like inside baseball maybe for the, for the podcast listening audience, but I have a friend who's doing the, the Great Loop, um, oh. which is for those of you that aren't boaters, it's like this, it's such a huge accomplishment because I learned the other day that fewer people finish the Great Loop every year, then climb Mount Everest. So I think it's like 124 people finish this loop, which starts like in in New York, goes all the way around Florida, up the Mississippi River, through the Great Lakes and back down to New York, then climb Everest every year. And I have a friend who's leaving tomorrow on the Great Loop. And I'm really jealous. I want to do that. That's on my bucket list too. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, as a boater, that's not on mine. Interestingly, the Appalachian Trail is, but... I should add that. That's to my shocking. List. I know. I should add that to my list. I, you so should. You. <laughs> yeah, there's some great, if you want a reference book, uh, there's a really funny book actually written by a couple who just decided to do the great loop on a whim. I think it's called Honey, I Bought a Boat. It's hilarious. So if it's even if you're not into boating, it's a really funny book. Yeah, thank you. By the way, what are you reading right now that's inspiring you? Oh my gosh, what am I reading? Well, I, to be honest, I'm, I have a mentor. No, I have a mentee. I'm mentoring someone. There we go. I got the, the language right. And it's been a great experience for me because it's reminded me of all these things I didn't know, you know, 10 or 15 years ago and, and that I've learned along the way. So Michelle, my mentee, is really interested in learning about personas from a marketing perspective that, you know, she wants to know everything about it. So we're reading um, Adele Ravella's book called Buyer Personas. I read it when it first came out, I think in 2014 or 2013, really enjoyed it back then, learned a lot from it, but I'm really enjoying rereading it. So Adele, thanks for writing a great book. (laughs) We'll call her out. Yeah, thank you. We will. And if people want to get in touch with you, Andrew, they want to learn more, follow your insights. What's the best way to do that? Sure. Well, every Thursday I I have a new video on YouTube. If you just search The Loyalty Loop or Andrew Davis and The Loyalty Loop, you'll find my channel. And every week we're kind of giving some more strategic sales and marketing focused advice, this big thinking advice for people that are running a business and need to be more creative and think about their experience in new ways. Uh, Or you can find me on LinkedIn. That's one of the easiest ways. Just search for me, Andrew Davis. And uh, those are probably the best two ways to get a hold of me. Twitter at, at Drew Davis here, but I haven't been on there lately. I've just been too busy, I guess. 
Yeah, no, that's all right. Those are good. And actually, just a little plug for your videos. I saw you actually did a video where you walked everybody through how you do videos and your studios, which was super helpful. So for anybody who wants to get better at video, that's a nice resource. Yeah. yeah, awesome. And if you have questions about it, just shoot me a note on LinkedIn. I'm happy to point you in the right direction. And if you want to know what camera or lights, I have a list somewhere I can send you. You're accessible, Andrew. That's a good quality. I'm accessible. Thank you. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it's been great to have you as a guest today. Learned a lot from you. Really appreciate your time and, and look forward to uh, meeting you in person at Jolt. Oh, I can't wait. I will see you there. Thanks for stealing my strategy. Thank you.